is Point Grey Campus, located on the traditional, unceded, Coast Salish territory of the Hunkaminam-speaking Musqueam people. Join the Mount Pleasant Neighborhood House on September 27th from 12 to 6 p.m. in celebration of the diverse Mount Pleasant community at Metamorphist 2014. Enjoy a fun-filled day full of live music, an interactive art walk, and many activities for children, seniors, and everyone in between. Sponsored by Van City Credit Union. Hey! Let's talk about food and music, eating and grooving, munching and moving, forking and spooning, listening to tunes, yeah, dinner's on soon, and to get ready for, ready for, peanut butter and jams. You're listening to Peanut Butter and Jams with host Brenda and Jordy on CITR 101.9. Exploring local music and local food. Tune in to learn about the best eats and tunes from your neighborhood. And a weekly pairing for your date calendar. Warning. The endorsements and criticism expressed during the show are the opinions of the host, unless clearly identified as advertising. Put in your earbuds and fire up your taste buds. It's peanut butter and jams. Hello, everybody. It's Brenda in studio, and I wasn't here two weeks ago. Uh, and my co-host, Jordi Yao, uh, hosted the show with his girlfriend and peanut butter and jam correspondent, Darcy Broach. Um, so I've decided to replace him this show. <laughs> and uh, joining me in co-hosting will be uh, peanut butter and jam's correspondent, Kendra Lowen. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. And Kendra's uh, been a part of a few segments in the past. Notably, the there was a chocolate segment. There was a vodka tasting segment and another tasting segment. Oh, the best oh, sausage episode. Uh, there was um, Dine Out Vancouver in wow. February. Yeah. So she's actually been on quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And she, I am uh, an admirer of how Kendra talks about food. So I'm excited to have her co-host with me. We've got a few. We've actually got lots going on this show. Uh, Jordy submitted a pre-recorded segment on a chili festival that he went to with Darcy. Mmm, chili. Uh, Kendra and I are going to talk about this amazing meal we had last weekend. Yeah, my sister for her birthday um, hired a chef who's a friend of hers uh, to cook a, an amazing five-course meal. So we'll tell you more about that. Also, we're going to have a conversation with Happy Farmer Al who is the farmer that grows the CSA food boxes that uh, I'm a part of and that I am getting uh, shipments of fruit from the Okanagan, random shipments of fruit. So we're going to talk to him about his orchard, and we're also going to have a guest come in and talk about the UBC Cooking Club. So, Hooray. lots to talk about. So we'll start off with some songs, and the bulk of the show well. We're going to do a first set around the AMS Backyard Barbecue, which is happening tomorrow on campus. And we're going to do a set of bands from that event. We're live broadcasting that event on CITR from 3 till 6. And Anna Hillier, AMS, 
events has uh, planned a good lineup of bands, so we'll give you a preview of some of those today. And we're going to start with the band Good For Grapes, and the track is called A Sequel.
So we were just listening to Good for Grapes, and the track was called Sequel. And then the next band we played was The Tourist Company 
Bostock One from the album Space Race. And these are both bands that are playing tomorrow at the AMS Block Party, which we're live broadcasting. So if you're a student, come to the Backyard Barbecue. And if you're not, you can listen on the radio while you work. Sounds like a win-win situation to me. It's perfect. So as I mentioned, we're on CITR 101.9 FM, and I've got a new co-host. Take that, Jordi Yao, (laughs) Kendra Lowen. And then we've also got a new guest, Henry, from the UBC Cooking Club. Hi. Welcome in here. Thank you. Uh, So can you tell us a bit about the UBC Cooking Club? Yeah, we're um, about three years old now, and we cook food and we eat food, and that's basically it. So if you join us, especially if you're a first year in a residence with no kitchen, you get a chance to cook food and eat slightly better food than the cafeteria might provide you, and you don't have to eat craft dinners and McDonald's. So huh. it's a pretty good club to join. Do you, uh, do you give tips on how to cook, or how uh, does that work? So at least once a week we have an event where we'll teach you how to cook, and then you'll get a chance to actually cook it yourself. And if you're really, really pro, we'll kind of leave you to it, and you can maybe teach us something. If you're a complete idiot at cooking, which we get quite a lot of, mm. we'll teach you and make sure you can manage it. So we have people who've been joining us the last couple of years who now can cook and they couldn't before. So, What's the weirdest thing someone's cooked for you in that club? Uh, someone was baking a cake for us um, in an event and we told him to put all the stuff in a mixer and mix it up. And he went off to the equipment place and got a salad spinner and started <laughs> trying to mix it in there. And then all the plastic bits from the salad spinner broke and stayed in the batter, so you had a cake with molten plastic all through it. Oh, yeah. So that was pretty weird. That sounds like a disaster. And did you eat it? I I tried it. Um, (laughs) I didn't eat too much of it because it wasn't that good, even if it didn't have plastic in it. Oh, well, that's very supportive of you. I told him it was all right, and I told him (laughs) how to fix it. And to be fair, now he knows how to cook, and he knows just how to make that cake the right way. So where do you do your cooking? Um, we tend to move around a bit. We often do it in a room in the sub. We have all our own equipment, which we bring with us, so we don't need to be in a kitchen. Uh, but we also do events uh, in other kitchens. So we're doing one with Macante, the new pizza place, with their 800-degree oven, which will be fun. And we also go to the Whistler Lodge at least once a term to cook in their kitchen, which is pretty big. Yeah, that sounds amazing. It so, is. So in the sub, are is everyone, like, angling to get to the hot plate? Like, how many people are in your club? Um, so at the moment, none, because we're only selling membership as of, uh, this evening, but last year we had about 300 members, um, oh. but we have you know, half a dozen or so hot plates and it all depends. Yeah. You know, we'll put you into groups, making sure you're doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. And we don't always use hot plates. We use sous vide machines. We use ovens. We use, uh, blow torches, which is especially fun with people who don't know how to use them, but interesting. So you, you said a sous vide machine. Can you explain what that is? So sous vide is a fancy way of uh, cooking that's uh, fairly modern. If you go to a five-star restaurant, pretty much all their meat will be cooked that way. You basically vacuum seal the meat in plastic, so there's nowhere in there at all, and then you put it in the sous vide machine, which keeps water at a really specific temperature. You cook it at the internal temperature of the meat, and you can leave it in for a week, and it'll never overcook, and it gets Mm. incredibly tender. So a steak, a medium rare, is 56.5 degrees on the inside. The water will be 56.5 degrees, and you'll get a perfect medium rare steak all the way through. And it's delicious. That's incredible. What do you mean, leave it in for a week? So basically, because the water isn't any hotter than the meat's going to get, it's never going to overcook. So if you leave it in there for a week, it'll just keep breaking down the fibers and it'll get more and more tender. You don't have to leave it in there for a week. You can leave it in for about half an hour. But it's great for something like beef short ribs, which you want to cook for a long time. You can have beef short ribs that are medium rare, which normally you can't do. And they're really tender and delicious. Hmm. I think I want to join this club. Yeah, you I'm totally in. I don't even have a, I'm not even a student here and I want to join. Exactly. <laughs> so um, how did you get started? 
about a couple of years ago, uh, they uh, were advertising to get a new cooking teacher for their classes. And to be honest, I'd never taught before. And I was only a semi-amateur cook, but I thought, hey, I can give it a go. And it worked because I'm loud and I can pretend I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, you I'm sound like now. a chef. Thank you. <laughs> um, and it worked pretty well. And then uh, a few months after that, I got elected to be president. I've been president for a year and, well, a year and this year too. Okay, great. Uh, so uh, if, if students uh, want to get involved, how do they find out more? So you can go to our website, which is ubccookingclub.com, or you can like our Facebook page. The page is probably the best place uh, to find out all the information. We post all our events on there. And uh, you can also ask questions if you're cooking something at night and, oh, I don't know how to cook this steak I've got or whatever, we can tell you how. Uh, also, if you message us with your email address, we'll put you on the mailing list and we send emails out for all our events. Great. We also have an icebreaker event uh, this time next week on Thursday, uh, which we're hoping a couple of hundred people will come to. It'll be a big potluck uh, where some of our sponsors will come. So we're hoping the butcher might bring, you know, a few roasted cows or something. And um, we'll have all the information there. You can sign up for membership there. And pretty much anything you need to know, you'll be able to find out there. Okay. Do you have any other upcoming events? Uh, yeah, we're going for a free wine tasting this Sunday uh, with one of our sponsors, the Broadway Wine Store, uh, which is at 2 o'clock on Sunday. Uh, if you find the event on our Facebook page, you can come along with us for free. Four different wines, meat and cheese, all for free. It's pretty good. Um, then afterwards, we're doing an event with the UBC Farm. We're going to go and pick something. We're not sure what's actually <laughs> going to be available at the time, and we're going to cook it in their kitchen. Then after that, we're going to the Boulevard for International Coffee Day, uh, which we're going to do espresso and things where you get to play with the big machines and steam your own milk and all that sort of stuff. Oh, fun. Fun. So much going on. Yeah. Something at least once a week. Mm -hmm. How do you pick recipes? Or is it just kind of a free-for-all? For the events, to be honest, we generally pick what we can do cheap enough that we can make the event 5 or $10. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be really nice to do filet mignon every single week, but... Can't quite make that go into $10 budget. Um, We pick what we know how to cook, or at least what we can cook with the equipment we have, which, to be fair, nowadays is pretty much everything. But we also go for stuff that's interesting and will teach you cooking skills. So we're going to do an event uh, all about eggs, which are really important in cooking, where we will be uh, sous-viding the eggs to poach them. As I mentioned, sous-viding earlier, it's a kind of fancy technique. And we're going to be cooking scrambled eggs in a bain-marie with smoked salmon and things that you wouldn't normally do, but you can do at home, and you'll get, like, restaurant-quality scrambled eggs rather than random burnt scrambled eggs. Mm-hmm. Scrambled eggs are easy to do poorly. Very, very easy to do poorly, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's great when they're awesome. When they're awesome, it's great, yeah. yeah. And when there's smoked salmon in them, it's even more oh, awesome. Oh, yeah. Nice one. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Henry, for coming in today. Thanks for having me. And we had a brief, brief idea of you coming in to do small segments on a more more uh, consistent basis so love yeah. to do that like maybe bring we'll, some recipes yeah maybe we'll hear from the ubc cooking club again i hope so great thanks so much thank you
Join us on Chips and Dip every second Thursday afternoon, 1 to 2 p.m. with host Hannah Fazio for the freshest local indie pop tracks and upcoming shows at CITR 101.9 FM. And we just played two tracks from bands playing at the AMS Backyard Barbecue. That was Saboda with the song Stumble. And I saw them play before Bad, Bad, Not Good at Venue a couple weeks ago, and they were great. Yeah, that was a great song. And then Ryan Hemsworth, the song was Cream Soda, and he's the headliner for tomorrow. And he is a Canadian DJ and producer from Halifax who studied journalism, so we like that. And he uh, won a Juno for Electric Electronic Album of the Year. Right on. Mm-hmm. So right now we're going to play the segment on the Gastown Chili Festival. So here we go, Jarcy and Jordy. And it's just taking a moment to load, so um, yes. When was the, the festival? That's a good question i'm hoping jordy will fill us in <laughs> hi it's me jordy and darcy we're here to talk to you about chili yeah best intro ever <laughs> we went to the gastown chili fest yes we went to the gastown chili fest featuring restaurants all along in gastown like yeah all along gastown so there was um like the irish heather Chill Winston, Charles Bar, Peckinpah, um, Railtown Cafe, yeah, 
Tuck. Calabash. Calabash. Yeah, I think it's pronounced Tuck. It might be pronounced Tuck, I'm not sure. Yeah. Those guys. Yeah, and they are having a chill... Oh, and the Blarney Stone. Yeah. And they were having a chili contest, a chili cook-off, that you could go and taste the chili and then vote on who should who you thought should win mm-hmm. and they also had ribs mm-hmm. and some brisket some brisket and some johnny cakes and cornbread yeah and like sides coleslaw coleslaw yeah so it was relatively cheap to get in it was oh it was free to get in it was 250 for any one item of food because it was for 10 yes. bucks you would get four tokens or 20 bucks you would get eight tokens um <laughs> And each token would get you, like, about a little tub, not full. Yeah, they say about three ounces, three like ounces a, of chili. Yeah, but it was a lot of chili. Yeah, oh, it was, we were full. We were very full. Yeah, if I had just gotten four tokens, I would have been very full. Or I'm yeah. not very full, I would have been full. I would have felt like I'd satisfied. eaten a meal. Yeah. But I got, uh, we each, we, I got eight tokens and you got four tokens. And we split them, so we each had six tokens. Mm-hmm. Be- and that was enough that I was quite full, and I think if I'd had eight tokens, I wouldn't have... Yeah, we definitely did not need, need eight each. I wanted to try all the chilies, but there were too many chilies. Mm-hmm. Also, I wanted to eat a rib. Yes. And some brisket. Yes. Although, let's just talk about the chilies right now. Okay. What did we think of the chilies overall? Overall, pretty subpar. I thought that the chi- the quality of the chilies, there was two that I, I remember being go- like quite good. Yeah. And and then there was like four or five that I, I remember tried being pretty bad. That were like maybe not like just bland. I mean they were edible, but yeah, they, they maybe were, maybe what I mean I was is bland. Little, I was a little disappointed as someone who enters chili fests. That people entered a chili fest and thought that these would be winning, possible winning contenders for chili. Yeah, it was a little um, surprising, and I would say not worthy of promoting that restaurant in this food competition. Especially because some of these restaurants are quite good. And yeah, the, definitely. And the, yeah, but um, the ones that I had that were quite good. Yeah, we can talk about the. Um, was the Charles Bar who had a pork-based one with a yogurt drizzle? Mm-hmm. Chipotle like po- yogurt. Yeah, Chipotle yogurt drizzle. And it had been cooked for ten hours. Yeah, and it was that one was really good. It had like mm-hmm. a nice porky flavor to it, but it was also so it was like rich, but it also had like nice spicing, and yeah, it, wasn't it was nice. Overpoweringly one flavor or mm-hmm. anything like that. It was very well balanced. Mm-hmm. And the other one I really liked was Calabash. Which had a crazy line to get to. Yeah, it was definitely the most popular. It, was, it seemed like the most popular, which was um, really, really delicious. Um, it was a, the spiciest chili that I had there. Um, I didn't think it was too spicy, but some other people thought it was quite spicy. I thought it was quite spicy. Yeah, but uh, it, it, was, it was still it was still good. And it was also really nice and smoky mm-hmm. too. It was very smoky. Like they had some. Smoke if they just put like liquid smoke in, mm-hmm. or if they put some something that was hickory flavored in, or something. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of smokiness going on, and then they had, um, and then they put like fresh cilantro on top of it. Mm-hmm. 
That was really nice. Now, that being said, it, while it was spicy, it was the only one I can recall that was actually spicy. That's true. I mean, even though I liked the one from Charles Bar, it was a relatively bland um, yeah. in the spice department. Yeah. It was tasty uh, because pulled pork flavoring is tasty. Yeah. And the way they did it with chili was really interesting, but it wasn't like a spicy chili. Like, they all had a very, like, well... The Charles Bar had a very, yeah, round, savory flavor, mm-hmm. but it was a little surprising that only one had a spicy chili. Yeah. In a chili competition. That was my favorite one. It was the one that was most like what I think a chili is, and it was also really yeah. tasty. Where some of the other ones, I mean, okay, there was one that was a Texas chili, which is not, which means, for those of you who are not um, chili aficionados... A Texas chili is a no bean, like just meat chili. It's kind of like it doesn't mean just meat traditionally. Well, though. it's like tomato sauce. What it means is that it's instead of using ground meat, it uses stewing beef generally, uh, and and they don't have beans. So those are the two main rules. But they <sighs> Texas chili generally does have other things in it not much maybe some onions yeah this chili did not this chili just had meat and sauce yeah which i think is what a traditional texas chili is yeah maybe um it was good but didn't really taste like a chili yeah i i agree it was it was nice the meat was really tender yeah i believe that was railtown i think i think so you're the one who got that one i think that was railtown um yeah i mean it was well done uh but it wasn't I don't know. I, I just feel like it wasn't really in the same category as, say, the Calabash and Charles Bar one. But that said, the event was a really cool idea. And I would go to it again. I would just lower my expectations, I think. Yeah. Like, the event itself was organized by the Blarney Stone. Um, it was charity. It was for all these different, like, bars to compete with each other. They had bands. Yeah. Uh, playing. They were There was a wing eating contest. There was yeah, there was a Frank's Red Hot wing eating contest. Did you watch it? No. I didn't either. But I heard some people's names getting called out and were like, So and so, come to the stage, it's time to eat wings. Yeah. Um and then there and there was tons of people there. There were a lot of people. There was a lot more people there. And it was raining, so if it was a nice day there would have been way more people. If it was a nice day it might have been too popular. Yeah. So it was actually kind of a kind of good thing that it was raining. Yeah. And also, who doesn't want to eat chili on a rainy day? I want to eat chili every day. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, but there were other types of food, too, mm-hmm. as you were saying. Wings being one of them. There were some wings. There were some... There were ribs. There were some brisket. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and these were all, like, things that they could compete in to, like, you could, like... Yeah. Be like, best wings, best chili. Best ribs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, let's look that up. Let's read out who won. They should know by now. Is there winners? No. Maybe here. Nope. Hmm. Well, as of this recording, Tuesday night, they have not announced who the winners of the Chili Fest is on the Chili Fest website. Mm-hmm. So, if you're curious as to who won... Uh, maybe check back on their website. Um, yeah, but we we had some of the ribs and the brisket, and we did. Um, so we had uh, two wings, 
and one brisket. There may have been more brisket, but I... We had two ribs and one brisket. Yes, we had two ribs (laughs) and one brisket. Um, We only tried one brisket, so I'm not aware if there was other brisket. Yes, there Um, there was other brisket. We only had the brisket from the Irish Heather. It was very fatty. It was very fatty. It was. I think we got a bad cut of it. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know because a friend of ours who was also there said that it was that the piece he got was fatty as well. Which I mean, so, I I like fatty. Yeah. Meat. It was. But a, I don't it want was it to a be bit like too fatty. A big glob of fat. I want it to be like marbled in, oozed into the yeah. the meat. Um. So the brisket wasn't outstanding. I but wasn't really. I did have a very good rib. The rib, yeah, the rib from Calabash was delicious. Mm-hmm. It was everything you wanted in a rib. It was a nice, smoky, um, Very tender, savory nice barbecue sauce. sauce. It was really tender. It fell off the bone. We could literally just pick it with our plastic fork, and it came off. I think we used a plastic spoon. That's true. Yeah. We did. You didn't even need a fork. Didn't even so need so- a fork. The meat was so soft. Yeah, it was delicious, and it had a nice crispy, uh, crispy outside. And the other rib we had was the opposite. Yeah, so the first rib that I got was from Tuck, and it was... Which had okay chili. Yeah, the chili was okay. Uh, it was probably one of the... one, Probably the third or fourth best chili we had. Yeah. Um, the rib was... It had a really interesting idea. They had, like, a blackberry glaze mm-hmm. on the rib, which was delicious. Mm-hmm. But the rib itself was just cooked maybe, like, two hours too little. Um... I it had very, to really You, you really had to it. wrench at it. Yeah. <sighs> and then after a while, I just gave up because what I did get off in meat was not that rewarding. Yeah. So unfortunate. No, that's you're too bad. A rib. Maybe I just caught them when they were too early, but they should have been more prepared. They should have been prepared by the, so, so they should have been more prepared. It, it did go two days, Saturday and Sunday. Yeah. Um, which was neat. And um, I would go again. I would go next year if it happened again. I would go next year, but I like like you said, I would lower my expectations. I would lower my expectations, and if anyone who is involved with any of these restaurants are listening, tell everyone to step up their step up their game, unless they're Calabash, in which case you guys are great. Yeah, <laughs> you guys made great stuff. Yeah, to bring. but for everyone else. Spice is your friend, mm-hmm. and Especially cook your chili fest. and cook your ribs longer. Mm-hmm. That's the main areas of constructive criticism I could give. Yeah, as someone who's entered many a chili fest. Yeah, that's um, true. We've been in a chili fest now for five years. And and our game is pretty high. Well, we did go with the people from the chili fest. Still, it was like though. a bunch of people from the chili fest. And we all thought, we're like, hmm, could have been better. Yeah. And then we were like, maybe the best chili that we've had is made by our friends. And then we felt snobby. So also, um, (laughs) also, have your own chili fest. If you love chili, have a chili fest. Yeah. But only invite your friends who are going to make good chili. Invite all your friends. Uh, But only allow them to come if they bring a chili. Invite all your friends, but expect a lot from them. And then vote. And then if they... They'll get the picture. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like if this was the first one... I think that the other that they like next year they might take it more seriously now that they see what the competition's like. I hope so. I hope that some of them learn that uh, spice is a good thing, and yeah, that was the main thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just feel like I want uh, I want a Homer Simpson experience of chili. You want um, 
like a, I want an three days. insanity pepper. I want three days of hallucinations. <laughs> no, that's a good episode. Okay, well, we're going to get going. We might watch that episode of The Simpsons now. Um, but back to you in the studio, Brenda. Bye. Hi, it's me. You're listening to CITR 101.9, broadcasting from UBC's Point Grey campus, located on the traditional, unceded, Coast Salish territory of the Honkameenam-speaking Musqueam people. Join us on September 20th in celebrating Steam Whistle Oktoberfest in Vancouver with traditional music and entertainment, authentic German food, camaraderie, and of course, Steam Whistle Pilsner. Located at the Imperial at 319 Main Street, tickets are available at gettickets.ca. Come in costume for your chance to win great prizes. CITR encourages the safe consumption of alcohol. Make sure you have a safe ride home. Tomorrow's the perfect day 
You stand there like everyone else ever stood there before. Yeah. The wind blowing through you, the dark like an opening door. Yeah. And you suffer through every threat that just slipped through your hands. Yeah. There is no delight in our failure, you misunderstand. Hey, yeah. You know it's not too late. The rising down when you start to shake that direction down. Watch your beauty for everyone can see. Yeah. It's not a secret. You know it's not too late. So you can take mine in these glasses we empty tonight. Yeah. Oh, when you have misery, where do you keep it? Yeah. Well, I light it up and then burning demand that they let be.
And we're back. Uh, you're listening to 101.9 CITRFM from UBC. Uh, this is Kendra. I'm guest hosting with Brenda, and you're listening to Peanut Butter and Jams. And we have a guest uh, over the phone. Al, are you there? Can you hear us? And we have a guest. Let's try this again. Al, can you hear us? Yes, I can hear, but very poorly. Okay, we'll, uh, we'll talk louder. All right. Perfect. So, um, great. Um, so thanks so much, Al, for coming on the show. So just for some context, um, I'm part of a CSA community-supported agriculture food program uh, with Tinka's Orchard, which is Al's farm. And uh, there are three deliveries uh, with plums, pears, and apples. So uh, very excited to have Al on the radio show on Peanut Butter Jams on CITR 101.9 FM. But Al, can you tell us a bit about yourself? <laughs> Not too much to tell. Um, I'm a retired school teacher. I have a, a small farm. Um, I wouldn't call it really a farm. It's more like a hobby farm. Um, total acreage is 1.96 acres. I emphasize 1.96. We may come back to this magic number later if time allows. And on that area, um, um, that is our house, <clears throat> excuse me, a garden, and the rest is an orchard. That orchard is a little over an acre, and uh, on it I have um, approximately um, 87 trees. 87 or 88, I'm not quite sure. Um, I should know that because all trees <laughs> are almost like members of family. Um, I pamper them, I, uh, I look after them, and they produce some beautiful fruit. So that's my farming operation. Great. And you purchased this orchard in 1975? Yes, that is, that is when we bought uh, our little, little uh, piece of land in a small house which was on it at that time. Um, and uh, we um, enlarged the house to meet our future family, at that time planned family uh, needs. And we were fortunate enough to have two children, and um, the house was large enough to accommodate all four of us. And our children happily grew up on the farm and uh, now are gone and it is just uh, just uh, my wife and I who are left and look after the place. So when did you start doing CSA boxes? Um, it was about five years, not about, it was five years ago. Um, are you interested in, in, in history, how it all came into being? Sure. Uh, <clears throat> It was, um, it was actually a, um, um, a total coincidence. Um, maybe you or maybe you, uh, some of your listeners may have heard of the community-supported fisheries. Um, I cannot speak highly enough about this enterprise, and if anybody is interested, please look up Skipper Otto. Anyway, um, this, this little enterprise started um, a couple of years earlier than mine and, um, and proved to be quite successful. And some members of that cooperative were asking if there is anything similar or equivalent in fruits. At that time, there was not. But this young lady um, who was running the, the, the fisheries co-op, um, who happens to be a daughter-in-law of a very close friend of mine, 
When she met me, she asked if I would like to consider a possibility of shipping fruit to Vancouver. I was more skeptical, but, um, but I was sweet-talked into it. And she organized absolutely everything. All I needed was to grow the fruit, pack it, and deliver it to Vancouver. Even with first two deliveries, she helped out. And to my great surprise, it actually took off. It was very successful. There was a large enough number of people um, who were interested in clean fruit that is um, chemical-free. And, um, and, and um, um, so there we are. Five years later, I'm doing it. We have expanded. And uh, now most of my fruits um, are taken to Vancouver and distributed to our members. That's great. We're, we're so pleased for your success. I tasted one of your plums last night, and, uh, and it was amazing how tasty it is and how, how different it tastes from a, from a plum that you might buy at a store. Um, can you tell us more about your clean growing process and what it means to be chemical free? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm terribly sorry, but I cannot hear you properly. Can you speak up? Sure, yeah. Uh, I was just saying that I tasted one of your plums last night and it was delicious. Um, can you tell us more about your clean growing process and what it means for you to be chemical free? Well, uh, all right, gladly, because I think this is my, this is my um, uh, biggest, uh, biggest um, um, selling feature, um, that there are people who prefer, for a variety of reasons, some actually have to because of medical restrictions, eat chemical-free fruit. And um, I, I started like everybody else in the fruit industry in, in the 70s and early 80s, um, by generously using all sorts of chemical sprays to control insects and other diseases, um, such, as, such as various um, uh, forms of, of fungus. Um, but later on, I started to, to, to um, realize that actually it is maybe not necessary, that there are easier ways how to do it. Not easier um, as far as the labor goes, but uh, healthier ways how to go about growing fruit. And then, by strange coincidence, at that time, the government came up with the idea of the sterile insect release program. Now, that is a program to control the population of the codling moth, which is the worst pest on apples and pears. It happened to be extremely successful, and that eliminated the most dangerous, deadliest sprays that we had to apply to apples and pears. Since I didn't have to do that, I said, how about quitting all the sprays? Mm. So I did. And that happened about um, 15 years ago. Since then, my trees are getting no sprays at all. What that means is a lot of extra labor. But because it is a hobby farm, because I have plenty of time, and because for me it is a labor of love, I uh, don't mind um, uh, investing lots of time and labor into it. Um, what that basically means is that um, there is a plentiful supply of various insects in the, in, in the orchard, and some of them do damage the fruits. So uh, that, that when I do, for example, thinning, thinning is a process of decreasing the number of fruit links on the tree, sometimes to one quarter of the original set. Otherwise, I would have a million little apples. They wouldn't size up. So I have to rip off physically, one by one, 
three quarters of my apples from the tree until the ground under the tree is like a carpet full of small apples. While I do that, I keep paying attention to damaged fruit because there are, there are, there are as I said, some insects who do that. And I, of course, um, eliminate that. And I do this three more times during the season that I go through all my crop and if I see a damaged apple or a pear or any other fruit, I pick it off. So that the result is at the end, when I'm harvesting, most of my fruits are clean. Um, uh, that means undamaged. They are, they are clean as far as no chemicals, mm. but they are undamaged. If there is an occasional blemish, it is usually very superficial, just skin deep. So I ask my, my customers to cut it out and eat the rest. Everything is fine. It is strictly cosmetic damage on the fruit. So um, this requires a great deal of work, but um, as I said, since I have time and I love it, I don't mind. So uh, farms that use pesticides, does that mean they get larger? I'll speak up, please. Farms that use pesticides, does that mean they get bigger harvests? Um, if those people who use pesticides? Mm -hmm. Well, it, cut, it cuts down on labor. Mm -hmm. um, well, <clears throat> when I got into the fruit business, um, it was a common practice that a typical orchardist went through his orchard as soon as he saw something moving, he sprayed. Didn't pay my, my attention whether it was a good insect, beneficial, or bad insect. It was sprayed. Now, what that means is that the fruit grown by the, using this method of, of chemical control of, uh, of pests and diseases, the fruit is absolutely beautiful, without blemishes, well-sized, well-shaped, uh, and um, they, for example, use some hormone sprays for thinning, whereas I pull it off with my fingers, apple by apple. They do blossom thinning, which is a hormone spray, and that decreases the set on the of the fruit on the tree, and their thinning process is much quicker and cheaper. So um, they market this fruit because it is absolutely beautiful. My fruit isn't as nice-looking as a typical commercial crop, but um, I pride myself in saying that it is cleaner and healthier. Well, I think the food boxes that I get are beautiful. So, well, thank um, you. Yes. Um, how many people buy or participating in your CSA boxes? Uh, we have at the moment 34 members. And we have two types of memberships. Some are called regular and some are called light. The difference between the two is the amount of plums I sent down. Uh, some people do not have any use for 50 pounds of plums. So, um, so they get, they get uh, um, the light membership gives them smaller amount of plums. Otherwise, the amount of pears and apples is the same. So it is um, um, regular membership, 100 pounds of fruit, um, and uh, light membership, 75 pounds of fruit of um, those varieties, plums, apples, and pears. And so now, why? In, I beg your pardon? Oh, sorry. Why plums, pears, and apples? 
um, because that is the only thing which I have in adequate quantity to, to ship down. I have all sorts of other fruits, but I have one tree each, and those trees are generally small, and I don't have enough, or they ripen so far, uh, so far out of timeline for my shipment that it is not practical for me to ship down. For example, I have apricots, I have cherries, I have peaches, but they ripen at a time, uh, uh, they ripen on their own. Um, um, their ripening does not coincide with any other crop. So to send um, a couple of hundred pounds of, of, of cherries or peaches to Vancouver would not, would not uh, justify the expense connected with it. So I, I ship only those fruits which, are, which I have in large enough quantities and which ripen together. So, for example, I can pick, I can pick two different plums for the first shipment, three different plums, with different types of plums for the second shipment, together with three different types of summer apples. Third shipment will be mid-season apples, about six different varieties, and two different varieties of pears, and two different varieties of late plums. And finally, the last shipment, which doesn't happen every year, that depends on the interest from the members, because by then everybody got their share. But many people decide to order in addition to their, to their original package additional quantities of fruit, and I deliver fourth time. And that is late winter apples, of which I have about 12 varieties. So do you also sell fruit locally in Summerland? Yes, I do, because, uh, because not all my fruit goes to Vancouver. Um, I, I ship to Vancouver approximately 3,000 pounds, and I produce about between four and 5,000 pounds. So the difference I try to sell locally, and the only means to sell it locally is through the friends. I have some steady old customers who come year after year after year, and the local fruit stands. Um, the unfortunate part is that the business is so tough and so competitive that the price which I get locally is not worth the effort. Mm-hmm. But in any case, it, it gives me a chance to, 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 to uh, pass that fruit on to people who like it. Um, I don't make any money on it, but that doesn't matter too much as long as it doesn't go to waste. So how has the proliferation of wineries in the Okanagan affected fruit farmers? Um, Well, I think it is going to have a great impact because in our area, um, we live in a small town called Summerland, and um, and it is um, small by population, only about 12,000 people, but very large in area because there are lots of orchards around. Now, they were all orchards, but nowadays... They are mostly vineyards. Regardless where I drive through our community, on the outside of the, of the uh, 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 town center, I see yet another orchard being pulled out and replaced with vineyards. The grapes pay much, much, much better than fruit does. However, the result is that our fruit orchards are disappearing at a very fast, to me, alarming rate. If this trend continues, in 10 years, 
there will be hardly any orchards left. It will be all vineyards. Um, some people predict that um, there is such thing as a point of saturation of the market. What happens if that point of saturation is reached and and the grapes and subsect and and, cause, and 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 then later on wine cannot be sold? Will we rip out the vineyards and plant apple trees again? I don't know. I don't think it will happen in my lifetime, but I would not rule it out. And can you tell us a bit about your animal friends? <laughs> oh, about those pesky little beasts? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, well, <clears throat> because it is, a, it is a rural community, we have all sorts of creatures running around, small and large. Now, uh, <clears throat> As far as uh, the impact on my, on my orchard operation, there are three types of animals which are my friends generally, but I call them little blighters most of the time. Starting with the deer. We have many of them around here, and uh, because of see, this is connected to the, um, to, the, to the proliferation of the vineyards, all vineyards have to be fenced off. Now, the result of that is that there are fewer and fewer areas where these animals can go, live, or pass through. The corridors are decreased and, in some cases, eliminated. Our little area is one of those where they roam freely. So they are in our orchard all of the time. And what do they do? They prefer leaves from the fruit trees to the grass under the trees. So. Everything what they can reach from standing on all four is defoliated. All my low branches have only fruit hanging on them and no leaves. However, once the fruit ripens, they will eat the fruit as well. But I usually try to beat them to it and pick it sooner. Those are deer. Then I have my little friends, raccoons. I have two large families. About um, I, I, one has five, I have counted, the other I'm not quite sure, four or five which, uh, uh, young ones, which are already about three-quarter size. Now, when that family, one family, descends on a tree, they can, eat, they can eat easily 30 pounds at one session. Um, they don't eat it all, but they damage it, they bite it, they drop it, they slobber over it, and render it unusable. So they do a great deal of damage. I try to persuade them not to climb up my trees. I put all sorts of wire barriers, but of course raccoons are extremely inventive and they always find a way up. I chase them with a stick. I try not to harm them because after all they are part of our environment, our little farm, farming family here, and, and they just happen to be little pesky occasionally and do some damage. Not their fault, they have to live. Finally, big black bears. At the moment, I have one which I haven't seen yet. I only see it's a, it's a business card left behind. It is a sizable animal. I haven't seen it yet, and so far it goes after my hazelnuts. They love hazelnuts. They will, they will climb up these, see, hazelnuts grow in a multi-trunk bushes. But they are, they are you know, um, up to 25 feet tall. They will clamber up 
and by the weight of their bodies, one trunk at a time will bend all the way to the ground. They will eat all the hazelnuts, not all, most of the hazelnuts off it, and then they dismount, the branch straightens up somewhat, but doesn't go back to its original position, and frequently I have to cut it out. Later on, when the hazelnuts are gone, which is another, another two weeks, three weeks, they go for walnuts. They will do the same thing to the walnuts, but walnuts are, of course, single-trunk trees. They will climb up and eat walnuts and eat walnuts from underneath, and um, sometimes they go after fruits. Uh, one year I had a serious problem when, when one black bear liked one particular sort of apples that was in that tree all the time and broke branches up to four inches in diameter. Now, that is a sizable branch, so it had to be quite high up, a very heavy animal. The branch of that size would break. Um, they do very serious damage to young trees because they break off all laterals, uh, lateral branches, and, and, and eat fruit of it. Um, last year, I had a family of three. Big, large, beautiful, beautiful animal, mama bear. Um, she was the largest bear I have seen around ever here in this, in, 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 in this part of the world. And she had with her two two-year-old cubs. They were already fully grown and on the last season with her before she chased them away and mates once again. Unfortunately, they decided to hibernate in our area somewhere nearby and did not go to the hills. I tried to make, them, make myself unpopular with them, chasing them with a stick. They were actually quite friendly, and that worried me because they were used to humans. Hmm. They stayed around. They woke up early from their hibernation, which wasn't very deep. Maybe they didn't have enough substantial food in the fall, and, and they were hungry, got up and got into some, some residential areas, became a nuisance. People complained. Conservation officers mm. came and sadly, tragically, shot them all because there are no funds to tranquilize them and transport them to some area where they could live. Well, that sounds pretty sad. Yes, it is. And, yes. Um, and, and if I see this bear, this solitary bear, which is coming, coming now, I will try to chase it any which way, I, by any, any means I can, to chase it away so it, it, it has respect for humans and finds them unfriendly and goes away. But chances are, I would say, chances are 90% that it will stay around and it will meet the same tragic end mm -hmm. like all the other urban bears do because there just aren't provincial funds to tranquilize them and move them away. Mm. Well, so thank that you is so much. That is the sad, sad, sad <laughs> story of our animal friends. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Happy Farmer Al, for talking to us about <laughs> your orchard and the animals and your farming practices. It was really neat to talk to you. Well, thank you for this interview. And if, if, I, if I can say just one last thing to your listeners, mm -hmm. life is incredibly beautiful. Enjoy it. Thanks, Al. Thanks, Al. So it was a pleasure to talk to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, so on our Facebook page, we do have 
uh, the link to the Tinka Family Orchard so you can go onto their WordPress site and learn more about his farm. Uh, we're going to play a song to bridge into the next segment of the show. Uh, it's a band called Tasty Animals and is kind of jazzy. When you join Balloon Club, we guarantee that you will be able to make a balloon poodle within the first day. Here at the UBC Ant Club, we just like to talk about ants and compare ant farms. Uh, it's really cool. Paperclip Club is all about, well, paperclips mostly. At Blah Club, you can blah blah, blah 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 blah. Explosion. 
There's only one club worth joining at UBC, and that's CITR 101.9 FM. We got free tickets to shows, whirly pops, professional help, and all types of audio engineering, passes to festivals, crazy parties, live band swag, all types of crazy people. Our programming manager rides a motorcycle. There's freestyle rapping, Nardwar, the human serviette, the vinyl and record libraries, Discord or magazine, free studio recording, and it sure beats the hell out of Paperclip Club, which is a thing that I just made up because I work at CITR. So come check us out on the top floor of the Student Union building. We got all types of crazy shit for you to do. Or check us out online at www.citr.ca. So we just heard a song by Dead Soft off their new record, Dead Soft, and the song was Phase. Before that, we heard uh, Royal Streets, Kings and Queens, song was Wasting Time, and a band called Trespassers Will off their self-titled album, and the song was called Horizon. So now that we've caught you up on all the songs that we played and didn't tell you what they were, <laughs> you can go back in the podcast and <laughs> and find your favorite song. Um, so we're going to move on to our last fourth segment of the show which is talking about a dinner that we went to a dinner party and not just any dinner party this this dinner party was cooked by the winner of top chef canada 2013 matthew stowe who was a friend of my sister's and it was the best meal of my life (laughs) the best meal it was pretty good so my sister, when uh, when he asked her what, what she wanted in the menu, she said, well, obviously chocolate. Um, but other than that, she wanted things that were um, local and that were fresh and in season. Um, so uh, uh, in between courses, as as Chef was uh, was presenting each course, he, he kind of described what was in it and, and talked about where the food was from. And uh, that's a really neat kind of way to, to have a dinner party is to learn about your food as you're eating it and hear where where it comes from and and just kind of be more connected that way especially when you have the best tomatoes you've ever tasted in your life you want to know where to buy them yes so the first course was uh hazelmere farms tomato salad and there were i don't know five or six kinds of tomato or tomato presentation things um there was a tomato sorbet there were frozen cubes of whipped tomato concentrate yeah, it was like tomato juice mixed with gelatin turned into these like foam cubes, these white foam cubes. Yeah, that changed my life. Had intense taste of tomato. <laughs> and basil buds, which is, I guess, the little kind of bud-like thing at the end, which is really flavorful. And then kind of a, a cold gazpacho soup poured around it. It was, it was incredible. Mm-hmm. Second course was Fraser Valley Rabbit Riettes. Uh, and Riettes are little pâtés. Um, and the and the little bunny rabbits were from the Fraser Valley, so uh, mm-hmm. local bunnies. Um, and it was served with different kinds of like peach textures, like crunchy peach and a, kind of another kind, of, like a peach kind of jam thing. Um, and then this peach sauce, yeah. and then chunks of peaches, yeah. And then these toasted brioche. Yeah, so you could sort of make a a bunny sandwich. Mm-hmm. And the the rabbit was mixed with duck fat. Right. So that may not sound appealing, but it was so tasty. Yeah, really tasty. And so smooth. And don't forget the pickled onions to just kind of give it a little bit of bite. Mm-hmm. It was amazing. So much peach. The third course was citrus-cured Lois Lake steelhead. Uh, and it was served with Chilliwack sweet corn annulati. So the, the filling of the annulati was this kind of corn creamy awesomeness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mushrooms and truffle vinaigrette. 
So the corn, he said that he juiced the corn and then thickened it up and it naturally thickened. And so the paste inside this pasta was just corn juice. And it tasted amazing. Who knew corn juice could be that good? Mm-hmm. Um, and he, uh, he told us also how he, how he made the fish. Um, so he, he uh, blended equal parts salt and sugar um, with uh, the zest of lemons, limes, and orange. Um, just kind of processed all, all in food processor and layered it on top of the fish like a paste. And then he, uh, he said he put it in a super low oven, like, I don't know, 250 degrees or something. Um, and he says this is a perfect way to cook fish at a dinner party because um, when you, usually when you, you know, if you barbecue fish, there's about 30 seconds between when it's done and when it's overdone. But if you have it in the oven at a low temperature, uh, you can, you know, be drinking a glass of wine with your friends and, and forget momentarily that you're cooking dinner. And uh, if you leave it in there a little bit too long, it doesn't overcook. Uh, and it, it was just so tasty and tender and perfect. And that is my usual problem. <laughs> Sticking <laughs> right? things in the oven yeah. and then not paying attention. Yeah, there was more than one ah around the table uh, when he said that. That was smart. <laughs> it was really smart. I wonder how many things you can do that for. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the chanterelle mushrooms were also in a citrus, citrus sort were of they? sauce, and they were amazing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that was my favorite course. Yeah. I think uh, I think every course was my favorite course. Mm-hmm. So then the, the ultimate meat course was uh, Pemberton Meadows Beef Tenderloin Cui Sous Vide. And if you were listening earlier to our interview with uh, Henry from the UBC Food Club, uh, he mentioned that they have a sous vide machine. So Brenda and I were both, aha, mm-hmm. well, now we find out what that means. So it's, uh, it's cooked uh, vacuum sealed and then cooked at the, in, in uh, water at the same temperature that you want the meat to be at. And it was amazing, tasty, and soft and incredible. Mm-hmm. And then, oh yeah, and it's served with a with a wine sauce that we all were trying to convince him he should bottle the sauce and sell it. And he's like, "Yeah, I've heard like that before." Crack. Yeah, yes. <laughs> you could put it on anything. <laughs> mm-hmm. And on top of crispy potatoes, king oyster mushrooms, and sauce bordelaise, yep. which was yeah, red wine, red wine sauce ish. It's amazing. Yeah, but the ultimate the ultimate thing was dessert. We had s'mores. But these are not your average burn your fingers on a campfire with smoke in your eyes s'mores. This was um, the most delectable, sophisticated, elegant s'more I've ever had. Glamping, for sure. Yes, this is the definition of glamping, if you could do this while camping. So he took this uh, these melted marshmallows and smeared them across the plate and then dabbed them around to make these little like poofs of marshmallows and then went at it with a blowtorch. <laughs> <laughs> and to get this sort of like uh, burnt, burnt, yeah, like charred, a fire, yeah, yeah, melted look, and then there was this uh, chocolate soil around with a ribbon of this like kind of like a almost like a pate fudge thing, yeah, pate chocolate ribbon yeah. in the middle, this like really gooey chocolate ness, chocolate brownie ish thing with some graham cracker ice cream. And there were some, like, wafer, crunchy honey wafer things. Yeah, like the honeycomb, like, on the inside of a crunchy bar. Mm-hmm. Kind of sprinkled over top. Were they actually honeycombs? Yeah. Well, some, some version of that, yeah. Yeah. Super crispy and really nice. And then some, yeah, graham cracker ice cream. And then sprinkled on top, he fried some rosemary uh, leaves to simulate um, pine needles. Mm-hmm. Um, but better than eating pine needles is eating 
fried rosemary. I mean, I'm <laughs> I'm going to try this at home. It was the best thing. Yeah. That was the clincher yeah. on the plate. Yeah. And then he took a bunch of wood chips mm-hmm. and put them in a pot and singed them and put them in the middle of the table to simulate smoke. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we got to sit around a campfire eating s'mores in our fancy high heels and party dresses. Mm-hmm. It was perfect. Drinking. Lots Drinking. of wine. Right. We had a wine pairing with each course. So, And the wine pairing was done by the guests. So we were all assigned a course and then sent out to pair wines, which was neat, too. Yeah. Yeah. So we had a, a small area of participation in the meal. <laughs> small. Very small. Yeah. Each of us got to stand up and explain our wine pairing and why we chose it, where it was from. And mm-hmm. it, was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. So definitely the best dinner of my life. Um, Matthew Stowe, check out his stuff. He's yeah, he's currently the um, uh, chef at Cactus Club. He's the product development chef there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so tasty. Um, so there's another idea for you for your next birthday. Uh, find a fantastic chef and convince them to make a dinner in your house. Um Our show is up, and next is Darren with Stereoscopic Readout. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Happy Farmer Al. Thank (laughs) you, Henry from the Cooking Club. And thank you, Darcy and Jordy and your mediocre chili. Um, Thanks so much, (laughs) and we'll see you in two weeks. Thanks so much, Kendra, for hosting with me. It's been fun. love that will be 